You're listening to Directions and Dialogue, a podcast where playwrights speak passionately about their craft. I'm David McKibben, and this week, on a very special two-part episode, we sit down with Philip Middleton Williams, author of plays such as The Hunter, Can't Live Without You, and All Together Now, along with the novel Bobby Kramer. In this first episode, we talk about how his education and life experience shaped his artistic endeavors as a playwright and a theater scholar. We will discuss his personal interactions with writers such as Lanford Wilson and Robert Anderson, and explore his latest unproduced works, The Sugar Ridge Rag and The House by the Side of the Road. So let's take our seats before the curtain rises. I'm good. Thank you very much. Good to see you. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself, where you were born, where you were raised, and what got you into theater and playwriting in the first place? I was born in Dallas, Texas, but we only lived there for about six months. We moved to St. Louis for a few years, and then I, but I grew up in a town called Perrysburg, Ohio, which is a suburb of Toledo. I grew up there, went to a very nice private school in Toledo for most of my education. I did spend one year at a prep school in New England my freshman year, which was enough of an experience for me to get a play out of it called Dark Twist. And then after graduation, I went to the University of Miami down here in Florida and got a BFA in acting because everybody who wants to be in theater wants to be an actor. I started acting actually in high school, did a couple of plays in high school. But when I got to the University of Miami, I majored in acting. I was in four plays my freshman year, and that was about it. The rest of the time I spent either building scenery or designing scenery or working backstage. And when I finished in 1974, I took a year off and then went to the University of Minnesota in Minneapolis and got an MFA in playwriting. I taught for a few years. I bummed around as a ski bum. I worked in radio. And then in 1982, I went back to the University of Colorado in Boulder to get a PhD in playwriting. And I finished that in 1988. Um, I really didn't start writing plays, though, until I was in grad school in Minnesota, because I started out in grad school as an actor, and they said, you're a better writer. So they switched me over to the writing program. I wrote a play called The Hunter, which was my master's thesis, and it was picked up by the University of Minnesota Theater Department. And they actually did it in April of 1977. And that basically got me started on on being a playwright. And who was your mentor at the University of Minnesota? It was a man named Charles Nolte, who is a wonderful mentor. He was also an actor. He starred as Billy Budd on Broadway, and he had a number of wonderful plays of his own that were produced in New York and in Minneapolis. And he really taught me an awful lot about just listening for characters and listening to what the characters are saying to each other. He, he was very involved in, in seeing the interaction of characters was more important sometimes than the actual moments of the plot. That, that was as an important element of, of telling a story as what happens in scene one, scene two, and the actual action. I thought that was an important lesson to learn. When I started grad school at Colorado, I was attracted to the works of Lanford Wilson. I remember very distinctly one day I was in my job at the university to make my living, was as the assistant tech director for the university theater. And I shared an office with a guy who was teaching an acting class. And, and one day somebody left a copy of a play on my desk called Fifth of July by Lanford Wilson. And I sat down and I read it just right straight through. And I said, wow, I really understand him. I wish I could write like him. And I started looking into his other plays. And it just so happened that at the time, Showtime was showing a film version of Fifth of July with the original cast from New York. 
they had done it as one of those Showtime goes to the theater productions. I saw that play and I was immediately enamored of it. And I decided to write my doctoral thesis on studying the work of Lanford Wilson. And I found out that he had worked since the early 60s with a director named Marshall W. Mason. And they, in 1969, had founded a theater company in New York called the Circle Rep Theater Company. And I decided to, rather than write some dry dissertation about some aspect of theater, I focused on their collaboration as playwright and director, particularly on three plays, the Tally series. Fifth of July, Tally's Folly and Tally and Son. And I, I actually got to meet them. I went to New York. I had wonderful time sitting down with Marshall W. Mason and Lanford Wilson, who couldn't have been nicer. Wonderful people. And got to know their work. I read every play I could get my hands on by Lanford Wilson. It was really important in American theater since the end of World War II. I mean, you look at the works by Arthur Miller and William Inge and Robert Anderson and Tennessee Williams. They're all derived really powerfully from the characters' interaction and their relationships and how they develop and grow. And so that's the kind of writing that I wanted to do. I was really taking my lead from their work. When you were speaking with Lanford Wilson, was there any advice that you received from him about crafting dialogue and crafting characters, particularly based on your experience reading plays like the Tally trilogy and Burn This? Was there anything that you could take away from your experience interacting with Lanford at all? Lanford was rather shy about his craft. I really had to listen. And when I was doing these interviews, and I, I did several interviews with both him and Marshall, I remember one time sitting in Saratoga Springs, New York, at about three o'clock in the morning and recording this all on a mini tape. Basically, it came around to just listening to the characters. Let them tell the story. You become almost the stenographer. You're listening to them tell the story, and they take over, and they will lead you in the right direction. And I have found that for me, particularly, that is very true. The dialogue that I admire in Lanford Wilson and other playwrights of that generation is what's called lyric realism. It's lyrical, but it, it doesn't sound like poetry. They're not reading verse. And they're very genuine and true to the character. So I think what I learned from him was through osmosis, by reading his plays, by listening to him talk, knowing his story, where he was from, and seeing how he crafted his works. I really picked up on that vibe. It also happened when, in 1991, I became involved with the William Inge Theater Festival in the town of Independence, Kansas. William Inge is famous for writing four major plays in American theater history, Picnic, Comeback Little Sheba, Bus Stop, and Dark at the Top of the Stairs. Grew up in Independence, Kansas. In, in the early 80s, they started having a theater festival. And I started going in 1991. And up until this last year, I haven't missed a year. The honor of living American playwright with the William Inge Award for the Distinguished Achievement in American Theater. And the first year that I was there in 91, they were honoring Edward Albee. And through the years, I've met Wendy Wasserstein, Peter Schaffer, Arthur Miller, Neil Simon, Stephen Sondheim, David Henry Wong, A.R. Gurney, just the, the list goes on and on. And I became friends with a lot of them. I became a very good and close friend with Robert Anderson who's best known for writing Tea and Sympathy, and I never sang for my father. He and I became friends, uh, correspondents. He, he read some of my work. He would send me work that he was working on. And I began to really absorb the stories that they were telling. And the more I got to know them, the more it reflected in my own way of writing a play. So it's geared on the characters, listening to the characters and developing them and watching them grow. And oftentimes, I think there was one point where they say, listen to the characters and the rest will take care of itself. And that's usually what happens. 
To what degree do you think your characters draw from personal experience? Obviously, you said you wrote a play inspired by your experience your freshman year at that prep school in New England. I also had the opportunity to take a look at your most recent unproduced play, The Sugar Ray Drag. And I was always curious as to where you would draw from personal experience and where you would draw from other inspirations such as Lanford Wilson or Robert Anderson. Every play that I've written, I think, has some aspect of my life. The Sugar Ridge Rag tells the story of twin brothers who in 1970 at the age of 17 have to decide what to do about the war in Vietnam. One brother decides to go and join the army as a medic. The other brother is drawn to his music and he's impelled to go study music and essentially dodge the draft and go to Canada. I don't have a twin brother but I faced the same decision in 1970 when I registered for the draft. This is in rural Ohio in 1970. Those of us who remember those times, the war in Vietnam had really divided the country, much like it was today, between pro-war and anti-war. I was very much anti-war for several reasons. One, I'm a pacifist. And two, I also knew that going into the army, they would ask me if I'm gay and I would have to answer yes. I had this idea for the Sugar Ridge Rag many years ago, but I wasn't sure how to place it. And then in May 2020, it was the 50th anniversary of the shootings at Kent State. And I remember that because I was junior in high school and that happened and it happened about 150 miles from where I live. And all of a sudden it became very clear to me that the play started on the day after Kent State when the brothers are faced with one's going to join the army, the other one's going to go off to study music in Canada, basically dodging the draft and the choices that they make. And it's a four character play. The other two characters are the parents. The father's a veteran of Korea, but he's not crazy about the war because he doesn't see the point of it. The mother, of course, is worried about her children going off to war. And so the parents are torn. And the issue of them being twins comes down to this. They basically started out as one person and then grew to two different people, drawn very different ways. And it was very tough for me to write the play because I'm bringing back memories of that time. The idea of the Sugar Ridge Rag is based on Scott Joplin's music, the ragtime music, which the musician likes to play. But it's also talking about the ragged division in the family and his friends and the people who are taking sides about the war, which I remember it being very, very divisive. It tore the country apart in 1970 and 1960s. And some of those echoes are still felt today. And I think today we're seeing that happen again, where there's a very powerful political schism developed between two sides in America. Personally, I did not have to go to Canada, but I was a conscientious objector. It was a very difficult choice to make. It put a lot of pressure on me to prove to the draft board in Wood County, Ohio, that I truly was against the war. And they begrudgingly granted me the conscientious objector status. But I really thought about what would have happened if I had gone into the service. And so the brothers are torn apart by that. At the end of the play, I bring them back together because they realize that they're two different people, but from the same cloth. Could you tell me a little bit about your experience writing Can't Live Without You and its first production in New York? Can't Live Without You was because I was having writer's block on a, on a book that I was writing called Bobby Kramer. Over Christmas 2001, my parents were here and we decided to spend Christmas down in the Everglades doing bird watching. And as we were driving down there, I was thinking about, why wow, I got this writer's block. What, what am I going to do about this? And it suddenly occurred to me, what happened if the main character in the novel showed up to me and said, come on, let's get to work on this. And by the time I got to the hotel in Flamingo, I had the first scene in my head written. And by the time we went to dinner, I'd actually typed it up. By the time Christmas break was over and I went back to work, I had basically written the play. And the story is this. There is a novelist who lives in the Keys with his girlfriend and has a very comfortable living writing trashy romance novels. And until one day in the house walks Bobby Kramer and Bobby Kramer says, 
what's happened to me? Why have you stuck me in the bottom of your desk drawer? I need to know what happens in the novel that you started to write five or 10 years ago. And so the, the author named Donnie is arguing with his alter ego and having a wonderful discussion about what it means to be who you are and what it means to be a writer. I finished the play and I showed it to some friends and we did a reading of it here in Miami. And then in 2007, I took it with me to the William Inge Festival. And I had some kids from the University of Nebraska, Omaha, sit down and do a table reading of it. And one woman, Rachel Charlotte Powers, was so taken by the script that she said, can I keep it? And I said, sure. And about eight months later, I got a call from her and she said, they're going to produce it at the Manhattan Rep off, off Broadway in January of 2008. It ran for six performances in Rep with some other plays. And then a few years ago, I believe in 2018 or so, the play group in Pompano Beach was sponsoring a playwriting contest and I submitted it and they chose it. And it was directed in 2019 at the Willow Theater in Boca Raton by a wonderful director named Jerry Jensen, who's well known in the area and is a wonderful director. And he really did a wonderful job with, with the play. But it was fun writing that play because at the time I was still working on the novel Bobby Kramer and the impetus to get it finished was through that play. And I actually did finish it last year. But talk about listening to the characters. I mean, on the play, he's actually this flesh and blood character that walks into the house and he's talking to him. And at one point, Donnie turns to him and says, okay, is this like some TV thing where you're like a ghost or a genie or something like that and nobody else can see you? And Bobby looks at him and says, oh, that is so old hat. I'm in your head. So if you hear me talking, that's you talking. So that's how that play came about. Wonderful. Wonderful. Obviously, you have spent a long time in South Florida, not only studying at the University of Miami for your undergrad, but you have done a lot of work from Miami to Pompano Beach to Lake Worth. How much of your experience in Florida has drawn into the work that you created? Uh, quite a bit of it. Being back here, it's wonderful to be here. And the All Together Place, All Together Now, All Together Again, All Together at Last, and Welcome to the Family, all take place here in, in Miami. And they are sort of Miami-centric. The gay couple that uh, finds out suddenly that one of them has fathered a 15-year-old son through in vitro fertilization is based on the fact that the, they're living in Miami. The kid runs away from his mother in Santa Fe and ends up trying to find his dad. And the story takes off from there. And I really felt that it was important to center it in, in a place like this, where First of all, I love being here. And second, I think it's conducive to going from one part of the country to another that's very different from where he grew up. He's used to seeing cactuses and roadrunners, and now he is seeing orchids and palmetto bugs. Also, I wrote another play, it's a short play called A Life Enriching Community, where an elderly gay couple settles into a retirement community down here in Miami. And they chose it because of the weather, but they also chose it because it's where they wanted to live ever since they first met many, many years ago. It's sort of been their dream place. The influence of living here in Florida and being multicultural is really wonderful for someone who grew up in the Midwest, where you don't see a lot. You didn't when I was growing up in the 60s and the 70s. And being down here and hearing different cultures, hearing different languages, finding out about the way people have grown up and been part of a, a different world and yet all living together, working together. I spent 17 years working for Miami-Dade County Public Schools and meeting all sorts of wonderful people through that. It's really been a microcosm of the American dream here in South Florida. It's funny that you mentioned that you worked for Miami-Dade County Public Schools for many years, and I can see that you've worked a multitude of day jobs throughout your education. I'm just curious as to how those life experiences, ranging from being a ski lift operator to a newscaster to an English teacher, inspired you as an artist to really come out of your shell and identify unique characters beyond what you're familiar with. That's part of it. And you meet people from all different walks of life. I was very fortunate when I was living in New Mexico to meet people whose families had been in New Mexico for 35 generations. 
I don't know if you've ever been to New Mexico or Santa Fe, but the joke is that there were kids skateboarding on the plaza in Santa Fe while the pilgrims were figuring out the place settings for Thanksgiving and meeting people who had been here in America before it was America and who really identified as being part of the land. Being a teacher, I got to meet all sorts of different people. I was working in a school in rural Indiana, or not quite rural Indiana, but almost. That's a different sort of aspect. I also spent 10 summers as a camp counselor in Colorado, where I got to really learn an awful lot about the, the wilderness and the importance of that. In fact, my first play, The Hunter, is about kids trying to cope with the wilderness. They're on a wilderness expedition course. Then living in a place like Miami, again, like I said, I've met so many different people from so many different walks of life. They've influenced me almost, like I said before, almost by osmosis, by absorbing that and figuring that out. Also, where I grew up, as you can probably tell a little bit by my accent, I was influenced by living close to Canada and finding out about that different part of the world too, as well, spending years in Northern Michigan. So I've really met some amazing people who in their own way have added something to my life. I had a partner who was from a wonderful, wonderful solid working class family in Colorado. They became very important to me and they still are to this day. And listening to them, them learning from me and me learning an awful lot from them. Due to the COVID-19 pandemic having an effect on live performance and the arts in general, I've always been curious as to how playwrights were able to sit down and create their work at a time where things feel stagnant. Do you feel like the COVID pandemic has caused you to be more motivated to write or has it caused you to push back? No, it's been amazing. It's been inspirational. In the last year, I've written 25 new plays. Wow. Which is more than I wrote between 1977 and 2019. A lot of them were plays that I had been thinking about and finally got around to doing, such as Dark Twist, the play about the year at the boarding school. And there's an entire series of short plays about my father. In 2014, I wrote a short play called A Moment of Clarity about me sitting with my father. And he was in the beginning stages of dementia and waiting for a prescription and having a conversation with my father. And I made that into a play. And then last year, about this time, I wrote another play. And then about a year ago, my father was diagnosed with COVID and he died on May 25th. And I wrote four or five more plays about fathers and sons and their relationship. And I turned it into a series called A House by the Side of the Road, which is based on a line from one of my favorite baseball broadcasters, Ernie Harwell. He used to say that a pitch went by that batter like a house by the side of the road. And the series starts off with young boys learning how to play baseball. And at the end of the series ends with the death of the father and beyond. And I felt that that was the way I dealt with mourning my father and, and honoring him in that way. Being isolated really inspired me to look at what I have written and what I could write. And so the plays that I've written since last year, only one or two have anything to do with COVID-19 at all. I think there's one play that's specifically about it. The rest have nothing whatsoever to do with it. But there is that influence of inward looking examination of exploration and believing in the preciousness of life. When my father passed, it was in many ways because of his illness and his dementia, it was to us, it was a blessing. He was free. And that one of the plays that I wrote was called Good Grief. It's about how to deal with the grieving process. And this is how I dealt with it, by writing about it. I also have found that I've made some wonderful connections with other playwrights doing Zoom. I've had a couple of plays produced through Zoom, and it has given me a chance to explore that. If anything, you'll find an awful lot of playwrights have found that this has been a time where they can explore and they can expand and write and get out there and do it. I'm speaking for myself, but I've seen a number of playwrights that have done that as well.
I recall speaking with Deborah Zoloffer in the previous episode, and she had basically a hard time adapting to going from a rehearsal room to Zoom due to the limited intimacy, communicating with actors, finding feedback beyond the actual rehearsal itself. Uh, yeah. Do you feel like some of the limitations associated with Zoom and its related technology has made an impact on your creative process? Well, it's not on the writing, but it certainly has on being able to get things done and, and to explore them. And I, I listened to your interview with Deborah, and it was wonderful to hear because she's expressing what I felt too. I've got all these plays that I really want to hear and I haven't had a chance to hear them. So far, the only people that have heard any of the plays that I've written last year has been my housemate's cat. And I think that the intimacy of being in the same room, of listening to the dialogue, of watching the actors, you can't do that on television. You just can't. And, and being able to walk up to them and to listen to them. As a playwright, I leave it all up to the director. My job is done. I turn it over to the director and the actors because the play, I trust the play to do the job. But I do miss that being in the same room with them and listening to them and following them because it, it helps me as a writer. The next time I write or the next time if we make a change in the line or if I sense that we need to make a change in the line or need to make a change anywhere, I really do miss that. That was sometimes the best process with sitting with these people. So yes, that, that's been very difficult. And I've had a couple of plays produced on Zoom and they turned out as well as they could, but it's not the same thing. And it really is making it difficult for, for everyone. And I'm, I'm hoping that we can get back to what passes for normal theater again soon. Likewise. If there were any exercises or any kind of writing tools that you use to free write or to develop an idea, what would you recommend to a playwright who's just starting out or a playwright who is just dealing with writer's block? For beginning writers, I always tell them to choose something simple to write. Just, just sit down and tell a story. Even if it's a one-minute or a five-minute story, just sit down and do it. Tell a joke. When they had the one-minute play festival here, people say one-minute plays are very hard to write. Well, when I worked in radio, I got to write commercials, and they have to be one minute, and you have to tell an entire story and sell a product in one minute. So I say, just tell a joke. Give yourself, for example, a simple topic. I had a wonderful time working with Professor Ariana Rose at Broward Community College, where I would come in, and I would give her students a playwriting prompt, very simple playwriting prompt to say, okay, just go for it. Write it out. And there's no such thing as wrong. Just do it. And they would have more fun doing that. And then they would start thinking. And I had a couple of students afterward say, hey, I really expanded this. I said, great, let's see it. And you never turn them away. For the ongoing writer with the writer's block, my solution has been to just to plow right on through it. Just punch your shoulders and punch through it. You may write garbage, but you can go back and fix that. And you may find a nugget of inspiration in that. That's what happened to me with with Can't Live Without You. There was one point in that play, in that process, where I wrote a scene that just didn't work. And I said, okay, so I'm just going to plow right through it. That's a lesson I learned from Lanford Wilson. He would write where he got to an end of a place where he couldn't figure out what to do. He would write something called Bridge to Come, which meant that he would have a bridge between this scene and the next scene, to the point where some of his actors would say, okay, Lance, your next play is going to be called Bridge to Come. And that's what I would do. I would just plow right through it. Sometimes it would be just nothing creative at all. It would just say, okay, so-and-so does this, so-and-so does that, so-and-so says something else, and then go back and fix it. But for the beginning writer, again, the imagination can be so wonderful if you just give them just a simple prompt. One of them that I gave them was, you call in sick to work one day because you want to go to the beach. And when you get to the beach, there's your boss, the one you called in sick to. A lot of them had a lot of fun with it. And then one of them turned to me and says, you know what? She turned to the boss and said, I called in sick, but what are you doing here? And I thought, that's brilliant. <laughs> I love it. 
That's brilliant. I've been working with a couple of younger writers, and I say younger in that they're not my age. And that's what I tell them. Just have at it. The best thing about playwriting is that you can always fix it. Neil Simon called his memoirs rewrites because that's what his life was like. And there's a wonderful story about Tennessee Williams, who I think it's an apocryphal story, but apparently they were doing a production of one of his plays. I think it was either Cat on a Hot Tin Roof or Streetcar Named Desire at the Coconut Grove Playhouse in Miami in the early 70s. And he used to spend his winters down in Key West. And one day he shows up at the theater and he wants to watch the rehearsal. And everybody is just panic stricken because my God, here's Tennessee Williams to watch us do his play. And at a break, he walks down the aisle in the theater and goes up to the director and he says, I have some rewrites. <laughs> so I tell writers, just keep writing. Just don't stop. Sit down at your computer or, or your longhand or wherever you're going to write and just write. You may be surprised and very happy with what comes up. It may be nothing, but it, it's always good. Also during the pandemic, I can see how so many actors, writers, directors have explored other means of creative expression during yeah. these unusual times. Have there been any alternative means of creative expression that you have explored during the pandemic? Not really. In terms of outward writing, I haven't. I've had a little fun doing some short stories of my own just for fun, uh, creating some characters and having them feel little stories. But that's more like just that's for personal stuff. As far as something else in terms of writing for film or television, I've never done that. I've never even ventured into that or poetry or anything like that. Unfortunately, my poetic experience is limited to things that usually go a lady from Arlington Heights or something <laughs> like that. But I have seen an awful lot of other writers explore other venues in terms of just readings, where they get people around a table, Zoom readings. And I've seen that happen. And there is one friend of mine who took one of his plays and turned it into a radio drama, which is perfect for this kind of medium. There are others who are doing sketch work, which is great for Zoom because it doesn't take much time. It doesn't take a whole lot of effort to create. You're not worried about scenery or costume or anything like that. And it's been a lot of fun. They've been doing that kind of stuff. But I basically, I'm either writing plays or I'm writing these little short stories that are just little sketches for my own edification just to keep me busy. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Philip. It has been a joy working with you. Remember to check out Philip Middleton Williams's plays. He has his plays published on the New Play Exchange, which is relatively inexpensive to join if you are not a member already. They are all available online in PDF format on the New Play Exchange. He is also published on Smith Press. Part two, as we delve deeper into our conversation with Philip Middleton Williams. Be sure to like Directions and Dialogue on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Our episodes are available for your listening pleasure on SoundCloud, YouTube, and Spotify. Directions and Dialogue is produced and hosted by David McKibben, with music by Twin Musicom.